Welcome to Famous People You've Never Heard Of, the podcast brought to you by Blue Fire Theatre Company. Each week, Lottie, Linda or Steve will guide you through the centuries to shine the spotlight once again on entertainers the world has forgotten. Thank you so much for joining us as we chat to our fabulous guests and find out more about these forgotten superstars of history. If you enjoy the podcast, do please rate, review and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode and more people find out about us. And now, let us delay no longer in introducing you to a famous person you've never heard of. So here today in our Zoom room, we have got Elizabeth Blake, who is a dancer and choreographer and actress and all sorts of wonderful things. And she is, she'll tell you all about that in a minute. Um, and she's here to talk to us about Isadora Duncan, who is probably a famous person you've never heard of, might be. Um, but Isadora, if I think I'm right in saying, changed the entire face of modern dance in the early 20th century. So uh, we'll find out a lot more about her later from the expert, who is not me. And um, so, Elizabeth, hi, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. <laughs> Lovely to have you. So Thank do you, you want to sort of tell the, the podcast peeps a little bit about yourself and, and what your interest in Isadora is or, or how it started, how you discovered her? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yes, as you rightly say, I'm, I'm a dancer and an actor and I do a little bit of writing as well. I first um, kind of got interested when I was working at a theatre in London, the King's Head Theatre in London, and um, there was a play on about Isadora. And um, I know I shouldn't publicise other people's plays, but <laughs> it was oh, very good. <laughs> We're very it generous was, here. <laughs> <laughs> it was a play called When She Danced by uh, Martin Sherman. And um, I saw it and, and I loved it. And then actually I became a choreographer working at the theatre and um, an American director brought a script about Isadora over to me and said, oh, you sound like the person to do this. But it was um, it was a little bit beyond my means at the time because it had a massive cast and included lots of children, <laughs> which we couldn't quite fit on the stage there. <laughs> so a small stage. Of, yeah, small stage. So I thought about the idea. The idea percolated for a while because I liked her ideas of sort of um, free expression in dance. And uh, then when I moved to Hampshire, which is where I live now, and um, to the Phoenix Theatre where my husband and I work, Phoenix Theatre in Hampshire, um, I thought it was a perfect place to do my own version of the Isadora story. So it was a nice, intimate studio theatre. And um, because my husband runs it, I had a bit of an advantage. <laughs> <laughs> Always helps. It does help, yes. yes. Nepotism is not dead. <laughs> no, no. So I sort of did lots of research. I went to a wonderful place, uh, which I shall name check, called the National Resource Centre for Dance at the University of Surrey in Guildford. And they're fantastic. You can contact them and say, I want to research 
whatever it is. And uh, they will get out all their lovely archive material for you. And you can go along there free and char- free of charge and spend a whole day studying there, which is great. <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah. If it's dance space, they must have had a lot about Isadora. Yes, they did. They they I said, what have you got on Isadora? They sent me about five pages <laughs> of books and um, old program notes and all sorts of things. Yes. Goodness. So what is it that's so fascinating about her? Well, I think because she was very much a woman ahead of her time. And I think she um, I think basically she she's been an inspiration to a lot of people. The people came after her. But to me, because she felt dance was something really important and it was something that really sort of touches people's souls and and inspires them. And uh, I think what she really did very, very well was she she connected with her audience and she really made them feel like they'd had a had an experience when they when they watched her dance. So, you know, at her time, there was a lot of ballet around, which was which was lovely and pretty (laughs) um but didn't really kind of touch people in the same way that you know that her dances did so I think she did um you know she did she did change a lot of the dance world and she was very brave and courageous and you know she had a lot of difficulties and a lot of criticism but she she was following her own path and I think you know that was quite inspiring (laughs) so she kind of took on the establishment did she she did absolutely. I mean, both as a, as an artist, but also as as a woman, because she had quite an unconventional personal life. Um, like she 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 wouldn't get married, and she had children, but she wouldn't get married. And um, people thought that she was a bit scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do tell. We like a bit of scandal. So. <laughs> uh, because she she was originally um associated with a famous uh, stage designer, Edward Gordon Craig. And uh, he he was very jealous, actually, of her, of her artistic success. And um, he basically didn't really want her to continue with her work. And, you know, it was a choice between her art and the relationship and um, the relation that her art won. But actually, he was already married. <laughs> and uh, yes... <laughs> So uh, sounds like a double standard to me. Double standards, and maybe the scandal wasn't all on her side all the time. Mm. (laughs) And then there was um, Paris Singer, who was well by our standards today, you'd say a billionaire. Um, But he just wanted her to be a society wife, so to sort of give up her art and and hold nice parties. And um, you know, he said, "Well, when we get married, you can give all this up." And uh, so she thought, no, that's not what I want. <laughs> and then the third, I mean, there's been various key figures, but the third particular one was a, was the Russian poet who was a lot younger than her, which caused a little bit of a stir. Um, but he was, I think he was, he had a bit of Russian temperament, you could say. And uh, yes, very passionate. There was lots of arguments. Um, apparently he used to trash hotel rooms. <laughs> It's yes. very rock and roll. Very rock. He was. He. I think today you would say he was a bit rock and roll, but I think he. Um, he. He apparently was a genius with his writing, but I think he couldn't really cope with everyday life that well. Um, and unfortunately, uh, he. They split up, and he left. And unfortunately, he ended his own life, which was very sad. 
Yeah, that's sad. And and I think, I mean, we'll talk about her, her work in a minute, but didn't she have a lot more tragedy? I think her children all died before her as well, didn't yes, they? Yes, yes. She she had a very um she had a very sad personal life, really. And she two of her children she lost when unfortunately they drowned because the car that they were traveling in um accidentally went into the River Seine in Paris. And that was just because um it was it was an accident. It was one of those things. The car stalled. The driver got out to it was one of those old cars you have to crank the engine from the front of the car. So the driver had to get out to do that, but the brake wasn't properly on. And of course, the car just, I mean, the, these days there's there's railings and fences and things round around that river, but there wasn't so much then. And the car just went over the bank and into the river, which oh, was terrible. Terribly, terribly sad. And she had one other child a little bit later, and unfortunately that one died at only about 24 hours old. It was born a little bit sickly, and this was at the beginning of the First World War in Paris. They'd called the doctor, but the Germans had blockaded Paris, and the doctor couldn't get through in time, and the child died, which was terribly sad. Oh. Oh, that's, that's awful. And it's, yes, again, it's one of these you know, world, world events and how they affect real people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah very, very sad. Oh. So is it, that was First World War. So she was born what, at the, the end of the 19th century? Yes, 1877. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was sort of in the Victorian era. But then, of course, towards the end of her life, because uh, she died in 1927, then the world had moved on. Uh, quite a lot because the first world war had happened and you know the 1920s the world changed quite a lot um and unfortunately that was where her she sort of fell out of fashion because her sort of rather romantic style dances which perhaps harked back to a different time didn't quite fit in with all the sort of american influenced jazz dances and the charleston and those sorts of things that people wanted to do at that mm. time <laughs> yeah she she certainly wasn't cutting edge anymore was she no 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 okay. she was yeah definitely not <laughs> and she was American I think wasn't she she was born in the states she was American um but she never really went down that well in America and then she became very critical of America which of course that they didn't like um but they particularly didn't like her association with Russia so when she went to Russia she supported uh, the people of Russia um, against the aristocracy. And uh, so she was allied with communism, the early stages of communism. And America did not like that at all. And they they called her a red sympathizer. And they actually took away her American citizenship. So oh. she, she that's why she ended her life. When, at the end of her life, she had moved to, she lived in France, not in America, because America basically didn't, didn't want her. <laughs> Gosh, I didn't realise that. I, I knew that she'd after she went to Russia, she went back to the States and did a tour, didn't she? She performed and it yes. didn't go down well. No, she, she didn't go down well. And in fact, she used to, at the end of her dances, she used to actually stand on the stage and lecture her audiences. And um, I think a lot of people felt that she was giving them a good old telling off <laughs> about, about the way they should live their lives. And uh, yes, that didn't always go down too well. And her tour manager at one point said, you've got to stop doing this because people are not going to come and see your concerts if you're going to give them a hard time afterwards. <laughs> yes, it's 
fair comment, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> but she doesn't sound the, the type who would have stopped. No, I, I think she was driven. She was very driven. And I think she she really did feel, I mean, it says in the play, she says, I am the dancer of the future. And I really do think she felt that she was put on this earth to do that. It was a gift she was given and it was a mission that she that she had. So I don't think, you know, very much would have stopped her doing that. <laughs> so how did she actually start out? Was she classically trained in ballet? Yes, she well, although she sort of she she kept she criticized ballet a lot. She called herself an enemy of the ballet, which is <laughs> quite a strong statement, I feel. <laughs> she did when she was a child a child, she did actually have some ballet ballet training, but she left school at quite an early age, and the family were very poor um, because the father had left them basically. So there was her her mother and she had a sister and two brothers as well so it was a family of four children the family were poor so she actually decided to start teaching dance and she was only very young herself so she sort of started teaching dance in her own her own dance style um to help bring money into into the household really that was how it how it started goodness and and yet she's her name's been linked with people like Diaghilev and uh, and all sorts Absolutely, absolutely. Very humble beginnings. Yes, very, very humble beginnings. And she did, um, you know, inspire, inspire Diaghilev, as as you say. Um, And now, actually, even ballet people. So, for example, Sir Frederick Ashton, who was the choreographer of the Royal Ballet, um, you know, you wouldn't think he's very ballet person was a very ballet person and you wouldn't think that he he would be inspired by her but he's when he was a very young man he saw her dance and uh, he was definitely inspired by her and she didn't she didn't criticize all ballet dancers the one who she actually had a lot of time for was Anna Pavlova so she did see her do her you know her her dying swan her famous solo and she actually did feel that she admired her artistry I think <laughs> it's interesting you say that because what our listeners won't know, but you do, is that I saw your play up yeah. at the Edinburgh Fringe, and I did actually think of the Dying Swan in one of the bits of choreography. So oh, really, yes, and I think correct me if I'm wrong because I often am, but you are actually doing her choreography. You're doing Isadora's real dances, aren't you? Yes. Well, yes. What I'm doing, I mean, I I didn't want to try to copy them exactly to try to be her because because who could you know you can't you can't do that I think she was so unique that that nobody could could actually try to to be her exactly but what I want and she did say to people she didn't she didn't want people to imitate her because after even when she was around and after her death there were quite a lot of people who tried to imitate her style but they didn't really understand where it came from. So it didn't really work. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to just say, oh, I'm going to do this step followed by that step because she, she didn't believe in doing steps as such. Um, what I wanted to do was to try to recreate perhaps a little bit of the spirit of what she did. So it might make people think perhaps this was a little bit of what it might have been like, you know, to see her. Because unfortunately, there is virtually no film footage at all. There's a tiny, tiny very short clip on YouTube of her dancing in a garden. It's the end of a dance in her very early days. And she literally, I think, does a couple of turns and a bow and that and that's it. <laughs> so nobody can, you know, nobody can really know. <laughs> 
So I did a lot of research and then I tried to just reimagine it and try to communicate perhaps what she was trying to communicate. Mm. Uh, so it's a really impressive piece, actually. I would recommend anyone go and see Elizabeth's play. It's Thank really you. <laughs> well, it's true. Don't say it if you don't mean it. <laughs> it helps if you're a fan of dance, but it doesn't matter if you're not because it's Absolutely. got lots of other stuff in it. So there you are. that she's fated and celebrated how, how do the americans feel about her now have they readopted her back into the, the family yes, absolutely and there is an organization in new york called the isadora duncan dance foundation who are very much dedicated to trying to um preserve her well both preserve her legacy and also raise awareness perhaps to people that you know may not know about it or people who are obviously weren't around at that time and um, they put on uh, concerts and shows and they do try to recreate some of her choreography. Um, there's also a lot of books written about her and um, so people can access those through their site as well. Um, and I think, you know, there's also been films about her. There was a very good film in, I think it was 1968 with Vanessa Redgrave playing playing her which I did watch for research <laughs> so um yeah so I think I think there's definite shift certainly in America because now they I think they now see the value of what she did at the time yeah yeah and did she actually write a her own memoirs at all yeah she she was asked to towards the end of her life because she had no money basically she she was you know she she didn't have very much money but also when she did have money she wasn't good with money <laughs> uh, she didn't take care of money put it put it like that so she was asked to write her memoirs and she did do that and she's written a, an autobiography which is is available you could people can buy it and read it's called my life um some of it is possibly not 100% accurate because some of her, she didn't really want to do it. Um, and I think it perhaps bored her doing it a little bit. And I think some of her friends perhaps added bits. <laughs> um, and some of the friends were perhaps better described as hangers on rather than friends. So I think there may be parts of it that, you know, you might, take with a you know a pinch of salt and also the publishers wanted to make it sellable so they wanted to add a bit of spice shall we say <laughs> to it <laughs> whereas she she felt with, with all her personal life she never felt it was scandalous you see she felt she was just being true to her own emotions um, and she didn't feel that that was wrong in any way other people may have thought you know society doesn't approve <laughs> Well, and it's interesting, isn't it? A bit of spice because her in her day to day life, so she's had these at least three significant relationships, and she wouldn't marry any of them. All her yeah. children are born out of wedlock, and we're talking about you know over a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, she went off to Russia and did all that 
political stuff that was obviously frowned on by society. And I read somewhere, which I nearly fell off my chair when I saw it, actually, that she was acquainted with Alistair Crowley. Yes, absolutely. Now, if nothing else was scandalous, I think any acquaintance with Alistair Crowley is a bit scary. Definitely, because she was, she had quite a dark side to her nature, I think, because her, um, her, on her grandparents' side, she had some Celtic blood, so some Scottish and Irish blood. And I think, you know, there was a little bit of the sort of mystical or the slightly darker side coming coming through there. And I, I don't know for sure, but I think, you know, the Alistair Crowley thing might have been to do with trying to connect with her children mm-hmm. after she'd lost her children, you know, the spiritual side of, of, of life, I think. And actually one of her friends uh, then married... Alistair Crowley, and then used to do performances, almost doing impressions of Isadora. Oh my goodness! Yes, yeah, so it was all a bit, it's all a bit strange. <laughs> yes, because I know that he um, based one of his characters in a, in a book on her, but yeah. changed the name. But I, I didn't realise that uh, his missus was doing impressions as well. So yeah, yes. who knew? <laughs> yeah, so she certainly mixed with the great and the good. Yes, she did. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and and was she sort of a, a very solitary person and just all about her performance or, or was she interested in passing her skills on and teaching? She, yeah, she was quite, I mean, before a performance, she was quite, she, she would like to literally, you know, go into her dressing room or wherever it was, her studio, and um, just be quiet and be away from everybody and she said that was the way to get what she called the motor in her soul moving so that she could then express that through her dance in terms of passing on her her dances or her technique you know she had several attempts to to found a school and and because of the probably financial mismanagement it, it they never really worked they never really amounted to anything very much um but she always felt that it was difficult to teach what she did because um she didn't really you know she didn't really do steps and she didn't really have a have a technique in the same way that ballet did it was more about the inspiration had to come from inside the person (laughs) who who was dancing although she did say um that in order to dance you did have to do exercises, look after your body, make your body a very um, creative instrument. So it wasn't just about, you know, you just sort of waft about. (laughs) There were some, you know, there were some sort of routines that you had to go through to to craft what you were doing. (laughs) And when she got to the the end of her life, she was living in in France, wasn't she? And was she still relatively poor then or had she made some money back she yeah she was she at the end of her life she she was poor for a while she lived um she stayed at this hotel (laughs) in in uh in France and it was um rather expensive hotel (laughs) and basically she kind of I suppose in a way she sort of pulled the wool over their eyes a little bit because she said well, as long as I'm living here and I'm ordering, you know, expensive food and, you know, I'm in an expensive hotel, 
they will assume that I'm an important person and I can pay my bills <laughs> still. Um, but in fact, she didn't pay the bills. And I believe that just before she died, it may have been the day before or even on the day, the hotel finally sent a massive bill to her room, which of course she wouldn't she wouldn't be able to pay. Um, but yes, no, she she definitely didn't really have any money at the end at the end of her at the end of her life which was you know which I think was was sad it is but it's a it's a common enough story isn't it we hear it all the time absolutely absolutely yeah people reach reach great heights and they're either overly generous or they're silly um or unlucky you know all of the above can happen some of them are all of the above yes (laughs) (laughs) and and tell me was because I'm always interested in the the music element of these things did she have any special pieces composed for her or did she choose certain types of music to dance to yeah she she did like she did veer towards um the the great composers if you like because actually at, at the time when she and certainly earlier in her earlier life um a lot of the music used for ballets was actually specially composed particularly for those ballets. So, you know, that it would be composed, so you'd have a certain, so many bars of music for this, this part of the ballet, so many bars of music for the next part of the ballet. She didn't want to be tied down <laughs> to that. And she felt that she wanted to use, um, you know, uh, like Beethoven was somebody she she greatly admired. Wagner was another one that she greatly admired. So she, you know, <laughs> she went straight to the top. Absolutely. She was a Valkyrie, wasn't she? <laughs> yes, yes, she absolutely was. And she felt, see, that kind of music really had been kind of venerated as as almost sort of sacred type of music and people would go and listen to it in in orchestral concerts but you know the fact somebody would dare to dance to it to try and add another layer to something that was already almost sacred um was you know was it was a bit of a shock to some people (laughs) I can imagine yes (laughs) and uh, did the composers actually endorse what she was doing any of the more modern ones um I think I think they possibly, I mean, obviously the ones who were still alive. Yes, I think, I know, you know, she was in, she was invited to dance. I think this was by Wagner's widow, actually, at um, at, a, at a big, you know, festival. Um, and I think, yes, they, they definitely did. They did endorse that. Although they were also, they had ballet dancers in that production as well and the ballet dancers and the supporters of the ballet dancers were not too happy (laughs) about Isadora appearing with you know her bare feet and her bare legs and her flimsy tunic and that's why as I reference in the play some of them actually threw tacks down onto the stage or the carpet she used to dance on a blue carpet and um and it cut her feet and made them bleed (laughs) so yes and she carried on she carried on. Yes. You know, I think she was a very courageous person and I I I admire that. She probably wasn't very easy to live with. <laughs> she was a very driven person, but I think, you know, she had the courage of her convictions and I do admire that. And, and did she sort of remain in in the political limelight as well? Um or was she more about sort of rights for 
individuals rather than a big political movement. Yes, I mean, she she would say that she wasn't a politician and she wasn't particularly interested in, in politics, although through her art, I think she made certain, you know, certain points like, you know, dancing these revolutionary dances in Russia at the time of the Russian Revolution. And that was very much... Um, celebrating the ordinary people but also trying to document trying to show through dance the struggles Mm -hmm. that ordinary poor people had you know people who were starving people who you know who were who'd lost everything and so I think there was a political element although she wasn't um she she didn't sort of particularly want to want to meet politicians and discuss policies or anything like that (laughs) and I seem to remember when you were doing the, the show in Edinburgh, didn't you meet someone who had known her or? Yes. Um, yes. So it was, it was quite, it was, a, it was an amazing, coinc- well, I don't know whether it was a coincidence, maybe it wasn't. Um, and I think it's the, the type of thing that can only happen at the Edinburgh Fringe because <laughs> all sorts of things can happen at the Edinburgh Fringe, as I know you know. Um, but it's after the on the last performance, um, a lovely man uh, came along, and he was a, a ex dancer, professional dancer, now dance teacher. He actually worked at Dance Base, the big national dance agency in Edinburgh, and he said he wanted to talk to me after the show, and I had a chat to him, and he had made quite extensive studies of Isadora, and he had been taught a sort of small excerpt of. of one of her dances which as far as he knew was as authentic as it could possibly get it was to a Chopin piece of music piano music and he said right I'm going to teach it to you and I thought he meant I thought he meant maybe over zoom once we'd gone home he went no no I don't do zoom I'm doing it right here right now (laughs) oh how wonderful in the street in Edinburgh yeah well yeah so we went literally outside the front of the venue in the public courtyard where people were sitting having their tea and their coffee and uh, he taught it to me and my husband was filming it <laughs> so <laughs> you we remember gathered, it. He gathered a little crowd <laughs> oh, so um, I'm going to pos- I'm probably going to include that dance in the show now because I think it was a privilege to to be taught that because it would have been handed down through generations mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's just a lovely story yeah and, and of course what what we We'll talk about your play soon and where it's going to be so people can go and see it. Um, but what we haven't talked about really is the, the elephant in the room, which is possibly the only thing that people do know about Isadora Duncan, and that's how the poor woman died. Absolutely. Um, yes. Um, yes. Which is, you know, it it was so tragic. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? You're... Yes. I mean, she was only... 50 years old um which is nothing really no age and uh, she did she did like wearing scarves and shawls and you know long if you think about the 1920s and maybe not long flowing scarves and shawls um and uh she was going to go out for a ride in a in a car now there's a bit of controversy I, I would like to think it was a Bugatti because <laughs> uh, Bugatti was the car of the day, the car that everybody wanted in 1927. Um, other people have said it was an Amel car, which is a similar make, I believe. I don't really know much about cars, but it looks very similar anyway. So it was a bit of controversy. Anyway, she 
she had thought about she wanted to buy this car, even though she had no money, but this is what she did. <laughs> and uh, so she was literally going to be taken out for a drive in the car. So she wasn't driving. Uh, there was somebody else, a man who was driving. And uh, unfortunately, those cars at the time, the I think I'm right in saying the passenger seat is set a little bit further back from the driver's seat. It's quite close to the back wheel. Um, and the wheels were different in those days. They didn't necessarily have all the guards and things over the mud guards and all the rest of it. And they had literally just started the engine, gone no more than, I don't know, just a, a few yards. And the scarf got caught in the back wheel of the car and it did literally strangle her. So it was a very sudden, shocking, dramatic, dramatic death. But in a way, I suppose you wouldn't expect her death to be anything other than dramatic because her life was very dramatic. So in a way, you know, I don't know, perhaps these these things have a way of maybe it was written in the stars. I don't know. <laughs> I don't it it know. does seem, I mean, it sounds terrible, but it, it, it does seem a, a fitting ending for such a dramatic life. For, yes. For and in a way, you way. know, it, it made her even more famous. It made her sort of famous again. It's a time when she was fading her reputation was fading and then it kind of made her famous again and I suppose it is a thing that most people know about her um so one of the reasons I wanted to do the play was I wanted to tell people that there was a lot more to know yeah (laughs) quite right too and I, I have discovered that obviously since that horrendous um accident there is an Isadora Duncan syndrome officially oh. in medicine there we are oh yes on wikipedia it must be true oh, well, yes. to this <laughs> refers to <laughs> i'm reading it now injury or death consequent to entanglement of neckwear with a wheel or other machinery oh my goodness wow <laughs> there you are so <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely but i think you know if she had just sort of lived on into old age and lived in poverty and sort of a lot you see when when she wasn't famous anymore a lot of her so-called friends disappeared (laughs) um and I think she might have been quite a lonely figure um and you know perhaps lonely and poor and having had such an, an amazing extraordinary life perhaps later on she wouldn't have wanted to to live you know a very sad life and she actually did say to to people that after she lost her children in a way she did go into a deep depression uh, uh, you know a deep decline unsurprisingly and in a way she sort of said perhaps she didn't really want to be on this earth anymore she wanted to join them wherever they might be (laughs) that's and she had just the man in young Alistair to help her Yes. yes. <laughs> I really, I know, I shouldn't keep going on about it, but I was fascinated by that. It's amazing. <laughs> so the the play then, it's obviously you've done it at Edinburgh. Had you done yeah. it before that or did it debut at Edinburgh? Well, no, I did do it before because, you know, fortunately working at a theatre, I was able to, <laughs> I was able to put it on with the support of that theatre the lovely phoenix theatre and arts centre in hampshire and um but i wrote it originally as a two-hander so there was me and another actor and he played the key roles of the key men in 
in her life. Um, but then with the pandemic <laughs> coming on and, uh, you know, and I, I'm a freelance, so, you know, life was very difficult, losing, losing money during the pandemic, couldn't really, couldn't really do regular work. Um, when it came to taking it up to Edinburgh, I thought I can't really uh, pay another actor <laughs> for the for the re-rehearsals, take him up there, pay for the accommodation, do all that. So making it a one-woman show was, was a a little bit of a cost-cutting <laughs> exercise, but I just thought there was a good way of doing it as a as a solo show. And I had also been asked to do some talks for the um, University of the Third Age, the U3A groups. Um, so I thought, why don't I combine some of that sort of talk as narration with my parts as Isadora and try and try and mould those two things together? So I wanted to do sort of part dramatization, part narration and part dance. And I wanted to see if I could blend them. And you did. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Super. And where, where is she on next? Has she got other dates planned? Yes. Well, I, I'm very pleased to say um, I have uh, a booking in November on Wednesday, the 6th of November. And that's I, that's down in Hampshire again. It's Petersfield in Hampshire. And they have a lovely museum in Petersfield uh, with a nice um, indoor space there. And they're very interested in historical figures and in people being learning more, finding out more through through theatre, really, about historical figures. So I'm doing that there in November. And then I'm just finalising. There was um, a lovely theatre director who came to see the show in Edinburgh. And uh, I'm now working out the dates for a booking it'll be the April or May next year at South Hill Park Arts Centre in Bracknell in Berkshire Super. so um so those are those are two um and obviously I'm just trying to work on more at the moment absolutely and uh, we should put in the show notes we'll put all your uh, your website details and all, all of those exciting things that so people can track you down yes absolutely and, yeah absolutely. follow where, wherever you may be <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so just quickly before we go, um, if you were go- going to have a fantasy dinner party, oh, <laughs> I just sometimes I spring this on people because it amuses me. Um, Isadora would obviously be there. Oh, yes. 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 Any, anyone else? I, mean, I should imagine Isadora could have been quite a disruptive guest, so she'd be quite fun. <laughs> Yes. Yes, I think I think she yes, I think she would have done. She would have been quite a disruptive guest. I think, you know, it would be fascinating to sort of put her with other people who've made a big impression or or changed the world of the arts in some ways, even if they were from a completely and totally different era. So, you know, could you imagine Isadora and Shakespeare, for example, what what kind of because she was very much, you know, later on in her in her life, she did want to dance about things that affected human beings, you know, and the human condition, because she wanted people to feel, you know, what it was like to be a human. And you know, Shakespeare obviously wrote a lot about the human condition as well. So I think that would be that would be quite a fascinating in you know um conversation. She also it's interesting you mentioning the Alice Crowley because she wasn't a follower of conventional religion at all. <laughs> um, she was, although she was very spiritual, but in a but it's in a different way. So I can imagine she would have had some quite 
heated discussions with somebody like a pope, for example. <laughs> I could see that that being quite an entertaining and <laughs> discussion. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting. Um, oh, thank you. And, and I'm going to go and try and find her book and see if I can pick out the bits that might have been exaggerated for her. Oh yes, yes. It, it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting read, and I actually think um, I think it's inspiring, and I think there are messages that today, even you know, nearly hundred years later, that that we can we can take from that. I mean, particularly just before we finish, I mentioned very quickly, you know, her idea about how nature is so so important and respect for nature and link connecting with nature which with what's happening in the world today very important still about about dance being part of education for children very important because you know dance always gets cut (laughs) when there's cuts in the arts um and also about you know uh, women basically needing to value their own natural bodies and not not feel they have to kind of enhance everything and go under under cosmetic surgery and and completely change and aspire to look like something that isn't natural and I think you know that's an important message as well for people today <laughs> it is she was definitely as you said earlier ahead of her time wasn't she she's yeah and I think you know some of the things she said they do resonate now you know they read they do it does go through the ages and they do resonate today and I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the play no it's brilliant I'd I'd love to see her Twitter account oh my goodness (laughs) can you imagine (laughs) she'd be being blocked by people all over the place wouldn't she absolutely yes (laughs) anyway we digress so thank you so much for coming on to chat to us today we will look forward to finding out a little bit more with our continued research on Isadora Duncan. I hope everyone sort of picks up on that because I think she's great and everyone should know a bit more about her. Definitely, definitely, yes. Thanks Thank so you much. so much. Thank for listening to famous people you've never heard of. If you've enjoyed this week's podcast and would like to find out more, do take a look at the show notes where you'll find further information and reading material, as well as a transcription of today's episode. If you like what we do and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com slash theatre. Or, if you prefer to keep us going with a caffeine fix, you can do so at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash theatre. We really appreciate any support you can give to help keep the show on the road. And we'd also love it if you give the show a rate and a review. It really helps us to remain visible out there. And don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, where we'd love to see you.